From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Two years ago today, George Floyd was murdered by a Minneapolis police officer. His death sparked a racial reckoning across the country and calls for social justice and police accountability. We went out there with the message of stopping this police brutality, and we were met with the same police brutality that we were speaking out against. Today, protesters who were hurt during demonstrations in Denver. The next thing you know, there's all kinds of gas flying around and... Yeah, a lot of gas. That's what I remember. They reflect on whether anything's really changed. I have to believe that we collectively have made significant progress. I have to, right? Because I need my effort to have not been in vain. In Colorado, 6,000 miles of streams, the rainbow trout gets the glory, but the cutthroat trout is the true local. Rainbows were introduced to the Gunnison River in the late 19th century, but the cutthroats, marked with a crimson slash under their jaws, were already here, descendants of Pacific salmon that ventured further and further inland more than three million years ago. The ones that got the furthest evolved into the greenback cutthroat trout. Believed extinct by 1937, small populations were later discovered, and the greenback cutthroat trout officially became the state fish in 1994. But in a case of mistaken identity, genetic testing found those fish were not true greenback cutthroats. A small number of the real thing, however, were found in a stream on the southern slope of Pikes Peak, stocked by an innkeeper more than a century earlier. Anglers will find them there today, and in hatcheries around the state, making a comeback. A Colorado postcard from CPR, with the support of Sheets and Giggles, a Colorado company. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. The murder of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer two years ago today became a flashpoint for social justice. There were rallies across the U.S. calling for change, and in some cases, like in Denver, police clashed with protesters. In March, a federal jury found police used excessive force against demonstrators and violated their constitutional rights. The city was ordered to pay $14 million in damages to 12 of the protesters. Mark Silverstein is the legal director of the ACLU of Colorado. Our case was the first case stemming from the George Floyd protests that erupted around the country late May, early June 2020. Our case was the first one challenging the police misconduct that occurred at these protests to get to a jury trial and get to a jury verdict. It's really unusual and rare in federal court litigation for a case to get to a fully completed jury trial less than two years after the events. And it's really unusual in this case to have a jury verdict so soon before the statute of limitations has even elapsed. Mm -hmm. And now we're seeing more lawsuits being filed. Elaine Tassie is CPR's race, diversity, and equity reporter. She sat down with two of the protesters and a third whose case against the city is awaiting trial. She asked them what, if anything's changed since the murder and the protests. Let's start with Joe Dearis. You know, I think it was important for me to be out there because I grew up in the city. I grew up in Aurora, just off of Havana and Forth. And 
I grew up seeing the devastation that police have when they come through our neighborhoods and uh, take people from our community um, and put them in jail for minor drug offenses. Uh, it breaks up our families, it breaks up our communities, and I think as an adult, I started to put the, the, the dots together and it was just, it, it wasn't even a question of whether I needed to be out there. It, it, it was so apparent how wrong this country has been going. I think like we've never really had a racial reckoning and seeing how callously George Floyd was murdered it really drove me to to be out there and, and say, like, this is not the world we want to live in. And when we went out there, we went out there with the message of stopping this police brutality that was happening, has been happening for many years. Um, and we were met with the same police brutality that we were speaking out against. It was the third day, I believe, that I was out protesting and my friend Sarah was with me. She also works at the Colorado Education Association where I work. And yeah, we were standing peacefully, talking, uh, chanting. Can you talk a little bit about what happened to your eardrum? Yeah, so you know, in that specific instance, we were facing the police line that was lined up on Colfax. Um, we were on Lincoln facing Colfax. And we had seen how the police were reacting to people who were chanting, which is they would wait and see like more people gather in the street, and then they would release these flashbang grenades, uh, smoke grenades, and pepper gas and pepper balls. Um, and in one of those instances, one of the flashbang grenades hit my friend Sarah's foot, which was on my right side, and it damaged my eardrum. I had long, uh, sharp pains um, after that. And did it affect your hearing? Yeah, I mean, I lost my hearing for that, like, hour or two while I was there. Like, I, it was all ringing. Like, I couldn't hear anything from that ear. And then, like, for the rest of the week, it was a struggle to, to recover. Was it that same night that you then attempted to go to the parking area that you had left your cars in? And that's when the police reappeared. Can you talk a little bit about what happened then? Yeah, so I think like that was probably the most um, surreal experience that night. That was the, that was Saturday night of the, the first three days of the protest. And after being gassed out of the Capitol grounds, we were forced by the police uh, in caravans and these SUVs where they were hanging off the sides um, in military style like outfits just hunting protesters down in the middle of the different alleyways in and out of uh, 13th and 14th in Denver. So it seemed as though the police were literally seeking yeah. protesters in order to throw different non-lethal weaponry at them? That was my perception, is that there was no attempt to try and de-escalate situations. In fact, the police came in wanting to escalate the situation, wanting to fight protesters while we were just being peaceful. And, you know, being in the alleyways, we, um, and the way that they would do it is that we were 
would be walking like east on 13th or 14th Avenue and a SUV with police would come up behind you and start shooting pepper balls and then that would split the group up people would go left people would go right into the alleyways and then they would follow at one point they had closed off an alleyway on both ends of like 13th and 14th or I forget if it was 13th and 12th but um, the fact is that we were stuck in an alleyway while they were throwing smoke bombs uh, tear gas uh, shooting at us with pepper balls and I remember hearing screams of people who were falling because there was just no way to get out of it and uh, People were stepping on them. There, there was a real risk of, of a stampede and people actually being uh, seriously fatally hurt. It was, it was horrendous. And like I said, it was just like one of those situations that was just so surreal. I just could not imagine the police, like the, the people we were told are here to protect you, doing these kinds of things and, and, and doing it in a way that felt like they were like enjoying what they were doing. It didn't feel like it was being done to stop um there's all these excuses right that the 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 mayor and and the police department have said about why they were engaging in that violence and uh none of it rings true when when i think about those four days every time there was a serious uh, escalation of violence it felt like it was the police instigating it i read that you injured your hand so badly that you had to go to see an orthopedic specialist? Yeah. How yeah. is your hand now? Uh, my hand's doing all right. I think, like, that was probably the second or scariest, like, situation that I've ever been in, right? Like, I think when I tell this story, um, a lot of uh, the f- people I tell, like, say, well, like, what happened on Sunday was probably more scary than, like, what happened on Saturday, which is the what I explained when we were running through the trapped in the alleyways. So did you injure your hand that following Sunday? That is that Sunday when that happened. Tell us a little bit about what happened on that day that caused the injury. So that day, I think we all gathered around 8 p.m. Um, at the Capitol. It was one of the days where the unconstitutional uh, curfew was instituted, and we thought as much, and so we were out there saying this is uh, an unconstitutional <laughs> curfew meant to stifle the voices of folks who want racial justice. And so we were out there at 8 p.m., started marching down on Colfax, and uh, right about 8.30 near the police precinct on Washington and Colfax, maybe like 10 yards away from that intersection, police officers started to unload flashbang grenades and tear gas canisters. Um, And I had already experienced that, you know, like there had been three days of that for me. And so I knew um, what to expect and how I was going to feel. I had come prepared that day. Like each day seemed to be like a escalation. They seemed to have a new horror for us waiting. And so because I was hurt in my eardrums, I was wearing earplugs. Because I had seen fellow protesters be hit in the head with projectiles. I was wearing a hard hat because I knew that they were spraying people with pepper spray and and tear gas. I was wearing a bandana with uh, apple cider vinegar to cut down on on, on the effects of that tear gas. And that day while we were marching down on Colfax, I had seen families 
I'd seen small children. I'd seen uh, people in in sandals and flip flops, and I remember thinking like, they are in serious danger and they don't know it, right? And so when I saw the tear gas coming into the intersection, I just I couldn't think of anything else other than to get that poison away from our community. And so I I went into the intersection kicking the tear gas canisters in, in directions outside of where the protesters were. And uh, almost immediately I was struck in my head. And I have a picture of uh, where the tear gas canister struck and it has this like big black like smark. And if I wasn't wearing my hard hat, I don't think that I realized in the moment, but during trial, I think it really hit that I could could have seriously died that day and like I think that was also another 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 realization that has caused so much psychological trauma after the fact that you had put yourself at risk yeah without without even realizing that much until till much later Mm -hmm. Um, but so I was hit once in the helmet in the head and as I felt my helmet my hard hat falling I pulled it back up, and as I was pulling my hand down, I was hit again in, in the inside of my hand, and that's, uh, I, I thought my hand for sure was broken. Um, and so I turned away within the same motion, I was hit again in the back. And so uh, I had a big bruise on the upper back, or on the, like near my lower back, um, and I couldn't sit, I couldn't stand, like, it was a, an awful like two months for that to be healed. Like, it would, and 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 I had to go to the emergency room that 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 night to to have it all checked out to make sure that ever there wasn't any micro fractures. And it wasn't until weeks later that um they were able to to actually confirm that it was going to be okay and that there wasn't anything wrong. But it was a scary time. Joe Dearest, that protester who was hurt two years ago during demonstrations following the murder of George Floyd. Dearest was awarded $1 million by a federal jury. It found police used unnecessary force during the protests. CPR's Elaine Tassie also spoke with Philip Lopez, a protester whose case is pending. Take me back to the night of the 29th. You were attending a protest near Lincoln and Colfax? Yes. And so what happened? So we were, me and my friend just started walking around. We were just kind of seeing what was up and everything was, everybody was a little mad and cussing and stuff like that. Nothing really too wild at first. Then after a while, it started getting a little more wild. And the next thing you know, there's all kinds of gas flying around and yeah, it was a lot of, yeah, a lot of gas. That's what I remember. A lot of trying to breathe, looking for milk. Um, from one gas grenade to the next gas grenade, it's like every time you like walk to get away from it, there was another one right at your feet. So I was like, ah. And then according to the testimony, it sounds as though there was a projectile that was shot at your knee. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about what that felt like? Yeah, it hurt. It hurt pretty bad. It almost it took me down pretty much. I was on my knees with my hands up, don't shoot type thing. Then the police started advancing towards us. So I naturally, I get up, kind of walk back to the corner, hands up still. Then I got shot in the knee. And so did it break the skin? Yes, it did. I still have a bruise to this day. 
It's not a bruise, well, it's a scar. And what about the emotional scars? Can you talk about that? Well, the emotional scars, it's a little deep because I'm from Pueblo, so I've been dealing with police since I was a kid. Kind of mess with my PTSD a little bit and stuff like that. Trust, I don't trust police no more. Well, I never really have, and they just pretty much proved why I don't, you know? You said that you came from Pueblo and you had already had interactions with police where they had been abusive towards you? Oh, most definitely. Can you give me an example? Pretty much like the thing that happened to George Floyd. It would happen to us just on the regular and get pulled out the car, put on our faces and all that kind of stuff. You've been pulled out of your car and put oh, down on your definitely. face? Oh, most definitely. And so that didn't stop you from wanting to participate in the in the protests in Denver? Actually, that motivated me to do it more. Now that I'm an adult and I know how to speak for myself and stuff like that, it made me want to be there. You had mentioned to me a little bit on the phone when we talked about having PTSD, that it was making it difficult for you to continue working as you had before as a Jiffy Lube manager. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about how that PTSD impacts you? I can't be around so many people at times. And then if, say, if I do see a badge or something like that, it kind of makes me want to distance myself. And being in a place like that, you can't distance yourself. You have to do what's needed to be done for the job, you know? Are there times that you have flashbacks? Oh, most definitely. I've Every time I'm driving, tell you the truth. Why driving? Well, because there's cops. Every time I see a police officer, I get nervous and make sure I'm being good, even though I know I'm being good, not doing nothing wrong. Heart starts racing, kind of. Sometimes you'd have to pull over, get shaky and everything. Messes, messes with my mind a little bit. A lot of bit, I should say. You actually start to feel shaky? Oh, most definitely. And so then what do you do? I focus on my breathing. I do, do a lot of meditation, focus on my breathing. Have you gone to receive any mental health care? No. Do you think that you would want to? So that's another thing with me being from Pueblo and I've been through the system since I was a kid. I've done mental health stuff for years and years and years. And all that does is just mess with my PTSD still. <laughs> it's like something that's always forced upon me. So I kind of distance myself. I don't know if that's good or bad, but that's the way it is. Given what you went through, if you had it to do all over again, would you go back out and protest again? Most definitely. What makes you say that? Because I, I'm an older individual and I know how to use my words. And with me being here, in actuality, it's helping me sharpen my words so that I could be able to stand up for those of us that can't speak for, for ourselves. Have you heard about the Denver Police Department agreeing to make some changes to the way that it responds to protests? Most definitely I have. That's another reason why I would participate in the same thing again. With the whole erasing the Stapleton name from Denver and all that, I had a big part of that. So if I could do it again more, yes, I would. What do you think you got out of the experience of participating in the protest? I got a lot of... I guess a lot of propers from the people in my neighborhood and stuff. What did they say? They're proud of me for standing up for myself, for us. Elizabeth, for you, it was Thursday, May 28th, and you were standing on the steps of the Colorado State Capitol building when officers deployed tear gas towards the crowd. And what happened to you when that happened? Yeah, 
we were on the side, on the, the steps of our capital, and that's exactly what happened. They deployed um, gases. Um, I wouldn't have known to tell you what sort of gas, what sort of chemical. Um, it was clearly designed to disorient and harm, and it did both of those things. Um, a lot of things happened fast, and yet at the same time it felt very still. <laughs> sort of mm-hmm. conflicting uh, emotions because I'm grown enough and have seen enough and have known enough that perhaps I should have seen that coming in that moment, but I didn't. Um, first happened, very much a feeling of surreal. You're somebody who's been involved in various other protests before, and you were also instrumental in working with the police to rewrite some of the guidelines around interacting with the public and using non-lethal force. Do I have that right? Yes, both of those are correct. Protest has been an important part of my life in, in different ways for a long time. And more recently, in recent years, I... I mean, I was one of several members of community who worked with organizations and worked with the police department in a really good faith, long-term effort to improve the use of force practices and policies, both so that they had guidelines that were workable and were legal and fair, but also so community members had a a reference of expectations. So we both knew what to expect of our, our police officers. And you had been working on this for about four years. I'm wondering when you were out there, Do you think that the police recognized you and were deliberately targeting you because they knew who you were? So that's such a good question, and it's one I've thought about a lot, uh, particularly at different different periods. I've I've opted to sort of put it out in my mind now, right? So did officers know who I was and, uh, and the question of might they have been targeting me? Denver Police Department is a big department. There are certainly officers on that department, and especially leadership, and absolutely the chief and his commanders who would know me on site and by full name in a distance. Individual officers, perhaps. It's hard to say which ones. What really, your, what your question really gets at that gnawed at me for a long time and still does sometimes is, right, there's two options, um, particularly in one scenario where I was, was, in, was targeted and harmed crossing a street. Only one of two things can be true. Either the officers knew who I was and targeted me, or they didn't, right, and, and targeted whoever I was without knowing my identity. And both of those options is equally scary to me in different ways. And I've really wrestled with which would be worse, right, that you, you saw me and you picked, out, picked me out to target. That's terrifying, right? Um, or I'm just any old community member. And, right, my identity didn't protect me in any way. And that's equally terrifying. For two weeks after that night, you had eye pain. And then I also was reading that you suffer from asthma and that your vision was so distorted that you couldn't get your inhaler out of your bag. I can reflect now of how deep the emotional trauma and the mental strain is that there's a part of me that is aware, right, that I can objectively talk about a physical pain. And that's real and heavy, but it's harder to quantify and describe the ways in which we are harmed that aren't as as physical. Um, And you mentioned not being able to to see and get my inhaler. Um, For those who have dealt with or suffer from asthma, it is 
even though you know what's happening, even though you know you're having an asthma attack, it is just an incredibly, it feels, can feel like drowning. Um, and you, the instinct, right, is to move quickly and try and help yourself. But moving quickly makes it harder to breathe. So there's this tension of, right, you have to slow down because you don't want to lose what little bit of air you have. And I did struggle on that night that I consider for me the hardest night um, to get to find an inhaler, to find any sort of um, relief. And and I've realized since how counterproductive the inhaler itself is. Because, right, what is the inhaler doing? It's, it's me trying to bring all that I can into my lungs, expand my lungs and take in whatever's around. But I'm in a cloud of poison. So that was a really dangerous choice to be making, right? But I've had asthma attacks for decades. I haven't been tear gassed by my police or by anyone, right? So in that moment, yes, you're right that I, I couldn't find it. But perhaps struggling to find it was was an okay result in the moment because what I was trying to do was take in air and we were in clouds of chemical dust. So in retrospect, it wouldn't have been great to have been taking more of that in. So of all the different protests that you've participated in, would you say that this one was the worst? Of course we can compare because we're asked to, but there really isn't a, is a, isn't a comparison um, of anything that I'd endured uh, or experienced or witnessed personally. Nothing was close. Can you talk a little bit more about the officer who is going to be asked to pay $250,000? What exactly did he do to you? And can you explain why he was singled out personally for the punitive damages? The fact that I know his name uh, right, comes to an interesting set of events in terms of who's where and what cameras are on and that I happen to be filming. Because you had your cell phone with you and you had it out and you were using that to record some of what you were observing, correct? That That's exactly correct. So I was filming, and, and as, as I'm saying this... It, I recognize that um, perhaps you would believe me, but a lot of people wouldn't believe me when I tell you, court might not believe me when I tell you what happened and what he did if I didn't happen to also have video of it because it's that absurd and it should be that, um, it should be so far outside the norms of acceptable behavior, right, that it that it's an outlier, and unfortunately, it might not have been. Um, I was crossing a street. I was, I will, will admit, I was jaywalking, as we, right? I was not crossing at the crosswalk. I had good reasons for that. I was walking up a hill where there was an awful lot of gas, and it was a perfectly safe, actually, choice to cross where I crossed. And as I was crossing, and I was filming, walking um, towards the Capitol and crossing 14th, and I was watching uh, the half a dozen or so, and then there were others, but closest to me, officers who were just kind of in a line on the Capitol facing out. There were no protesters right there. And I've used the word surreal, but it, it was a surreal sight, it, you know, like sort of a small occupation, but with in response to nothing. There were no protesters right there. And I was, as I was filming, I saw an officer who was to the left of this line, as I'm looking at them, dropped his knee and... The, the image that was in my head and has remained there is it felt like a, a video game, it like like he was playing a video game. Dropped to his knee and pointed a weapon at me, and as I'm filming, deploys it. And even though I knew, I certainly thought, and now know that the weapon was, you know, was not a um, 
a, a firearm with, with traditional bullets, right, the sight still, right, stuck with me, right, for many nights and nightmares and um, that, that went away after a while but came right back during the trial of seeing this person with a gun, because that's what it is, and, right, we have to be really careful. I heard someone say earlier non-lethal weapons. They're not non-lethal weapons. They're, they're less lethal weapons, which is a distinction, but they're not non-lethal weapons. And to see him, and what he did is he dropped, to, to, took a knee um, to steady himself, to get his aim, and shot something into my leg. He shot a pepper ball at your leg, or what was it? Do you know? Th- that's, yes, that's what I, I didn't know that that's what it was at the time, but I do understand that's what it is. And what did that feel like? <laughs> uh, it hurt, is, is the short answer. It also was, I wish I had a better synonym for, for surreal, but just like this can't be happening. Um, it hurt. It stung. I was aware even in the moment of keeping my pace, finishing. I was almost, by the way, I said I, said I was crossing the street. I was almost done, right? It was more than two-thirds across the street when he makes his choice to do this. Um, so I came up on the sidewalk. I continued filming them, and I narrated what had just happened. And I think I kind of exhaled and said he just shot me in my um, leg or calf. And it hurt. Uh and you know, as it as it as it happened, I didn't even get to sit with that pain terribly long because it wasn't too much longer before his colleagues unleashed on us again. And so, so it's not like the next day I could isolate that one shot, but it hurt and it stung, and it was um, even through pants and left quite a mark even through thick jeans. CPR's race, diversity, and equity reporter Elaine Tassie speaking with Elizabeth Epps. Earlier, we spoke with Joe Deeris and Philip Lopez. They're three protesters who were hurt during demonstrations in Denver in 2020 following the murder of George Floyd. When we come back, how they hope the protests resonate, and would they do it again? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver. Aurora. Glenwood Springs. Grand Junction. Boulder. Silence Ranch. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. Month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. George Floyd died two years ago today. His murder by a Minneapolis police officer sent the country into a tailspin. It prompted protests across the U.S. and a nationwide reckoning on social justice, racism, and police accountability. We've been hearing from three people who protested in Denver. Two of them are part of a case in which a federal jury ordered the city to pay $14 million for excessive use of force and for violating their constitutional rights. The city is appealing the judgment. CPR's Elaine Tassie is joined by Joe Deeris, Elizabeth Epps, and Philip Lopez. So you two, meaning Joe and Elizabeth, have already sat through a trial 
And I'm wondering what advice do you have for Phil, who is going to be going through that in not too long, most likely? Just to be real clear about it not being legal advice, my first piece of advice is take it to trial. I mean, yeah. Make the best decision for you and your family in consultation with your lawyers. But if you can, if you have the fortitude, if you have the emotional capacity, take it to trial. Let, let the community see what happened, as opposed to it just being, you know, some, some check written and signed off on a Monday night at city council. It's not even an open session. And, you know, um, so that's piece of advice number one. Piece of advice number two, you know, you know yourself. You know how you get through tough things. You know whether that's, you know, you know what, the, what those things are and, and lean heavy into them. I, I needed to be there. I needed to hear every minute. I don't know that that's what everyone, right? Yeah. That everyone, that that's the right choice for everyone. Yeah, I would say, I, I would say that's where my advice would be is to, to find your support system, find people that you can rely on, um, whether that be your family, your friends, or your fellow co-plaintiffs now um, that have gone through the same things that you have, right? And, and really gauge what it is that you want to, to go through because it, I, I definitely, at the beginning of the trial, thought, I want to be here every day. I want to hear everything. And by the end of the first week, I was really struggling. And, you know, I thought that I could do it. And uh, I had to take a lot of breaks. I had to, like, figure out, like, what I needed to do to, to keep my health because it was deteriorating as we were going through this trial. So, yeah, take care of yourself. Find those ways. I'm so glad that there that. That you are, that you did the work that you did and that you've protested and, and stuff yourself, but also that there are cases. Um, my other piece of advice is tell everyone you know who can exercise that right to do so. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but I, I don't want our case to be a one-off. I don't, I don't, I don't want it to be a one-off um, either politically or policy-wise or for this city. I can speak for all of the plaintiffs in our case and knowing that we all wanted and want systemic change. That, that's the desire. And litigation is a really important part of that. So thank you. Um, take good care of you. Go every day if you can. And do you think you'll do any of those things? To do everything that I can to the utmost. I mean, I ain't nothing going to stop me to doing what I already started. I'm going to finish what I already started. Philip Lopez, along with Joe Dearest and Elizabeth Epps, speaking with CPR's Elaine Tassie. In April, the Denver City Council unanimously approved settlements with two other protesters without going to trial. Denver has spent more than $15 million settling claims to date. The city has acknowledged that mistakes were made during the protests, but it called the size and the length of the demonstrations unprecedented. More than 80 officers were injured when some protesters threw rocks and bottles at them. We asked the Denver Police Department and the Office of the City Attorney for additional comment. They replied with an email that said, quote, the city does not comment on pending litigation. Let's get some final thoughts now with CPR's Elaine Tassie and her guests. This is going to air on the two-year anniversary of George Floyd's death. And I'm just wondering what you all think about that. Joe? I've 
thought back about like what were the things that came out of the protest, the 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 message that we were hearing, and and the voices of the people in our communities, and I keep trying to contrast that with where we are now, and you know, like the the idea that we were out there asking for less police violence, for accountability, um, to defund the police, um, and knowing that this last State of the Union, the President of the United States uh, asked for for more more funding for police, just seemed to me to be uh, tone deaf in the most egregious way. Mm. And I can't say that I feel like we've made a lot of progress. I have to believe that we collectively have made significant progress. I have to, right? Because I need my effort to have not been in vain. Nothing fully honors, you know, George Floyd. And he didn't make a sacrifice. He didn't sign up for this. He wasn't a martyr. He didn't opt to be a, right? That wasn't his his choice. But I want a world and I want a Denver where, where someone, whether they are accused of passing a fake $20 bill or they are struggling with mental health issues or they are using a controlled substance, that the interaction is appropriate to the level of the of the action, right? So whether that's bringing out a mental health worker or a social worker or maybe the novel idea of just leaving someone alone, right, which is often the intervention we need. So when I think about the, this date, I'm aware that in Denver – doing no small part to the work of our plaintiffs, but also the many people who could have filed a lawsuit but didn't for a host of reasons, didn't want to go through what we did. We've made progress on some policing issues, and we've also taken some pretty big step back. I think there should be more brown Chicano and Mexicanos out there doing doing the thing too because the police, they harass us too, you know, just as much as the black the Black Lives Matter and all that. And it ain't even a black thing. It's a black and brown thing. We get treated the same when it boils down to it. You might as well jump in the front line with our brothers and sisters from the streets and speak up for ourselves. I didn't see really too many brown people out there. And when I did see them out there, they weren't doing what they should be. I think they should be out there protesting more as well. That's why I'm out here. Thank you so much for participating. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Elaine Tassie is CPR's race, diversity, and equity reporter. She spoke with Joe Dearis, Elizabeth Epps, and Philip Lopez, who were injured two years ago during protests in Denver, prompted by the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Thanks for joining us today on Colorado Matters. I'm Andrea Dukakis, with special thanks to Chuck Murphy. This is CPR News and KRCC.